Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Mel Schwartz. He's a psychotherapist, a marriage counselor, an author, a two-time TEDx speaker, a podcaster, and a leadership consultant. Uh, He earned uh, his MSW degree from Columbia University in New York City and Master of Philosophy from Lancaster University in England. So we're going to talk about uh, overcoming anxiety using some uh, principles that he's developed. So, Mel, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Rich. Nice to be joining you today. Yeah, tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you you got to the point where you're looking at issues such as, you know, anxiety and depression. Well, it all began for me, or this this adventure began for me 25 some odd years ago. I had... uh, been in business. I was reasonably successful, living the life that I thought I should be living, driving out of Manhattan to my home with my big mortgage and my two young children. And I had an epiphany. It was an insight in which I thought, I need more meaning and purpose in my life. I'm making a good living. This is the life I thought I should be living, but there's got to be more. Well, by the next day, I, I kind of came to it. I understood what my calling was, and I applied to graduate school. Well, that decision ultimately precipitated a divorce in my life. And so we'll fast forward a couple of years. Um, I'm now divorced and my sons who are six and 10 are living primarily with me and I'm finished with graduate school. And I go out for a bike ride on a beautiful day and I have a full blown anxiety attack. Perhaps the first I had ever had. I felt panicky. I turned the bike around and headed home. I had no idea what relief that would give me, but that's what I did. When I got into the house, I pulled a book off the shelf that I had not read yet, and it was called The Turning Point, and it was my turning point. I started to read about this shift in in our understanding of reality, coming from quantum physics, 
And I'd like your listeners to understand I was a lousy science student. So none of this has to do with understanding science. But I began to read that reality is not what we thought. It was full of uncertainty. Now, what precipitated my anxiety attack on that bike ride? I got fearful about will I ever be able to establish a successful enough practice to support my sons? Will I ever meet another woman and fall in love again? I had the fear of the unknown. Well, I started to read this book, and it suggested that reality is uncertain, not what we were taught. Um, We were taught to seek predictability and certainty. And I realized my anxiety was due to my discomfort with uncertainty. So in that moment, I had my next insight. What if I welcomed uncertainty instead of resisting it? I went on to read other principles of science, like connectivity, inseparability, really spiritual concepts, but grounded in science. And in the coming days and weeks and months, not only was I calm and serene and reflective, I was on a mission. I was full of passion. I was developing a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at reality. So I began to think if this had this benefit for me, I need to really try this as a therapeutic approach. And over the years, over many years, I've cultivated a particular approach in overcoming anxiety based upon welcoming rather than resisting uncertainty and also learning to see our thoughts that attach to fear and developing the skill not to become those thoughts. So my experience is that anxiety is not something to manage. That's that's just too short-sighted. We can transcend anxiety. And I gave a TEDx talk on it. And that has been one of my passions in life. Well, in the moment, you know, I've felt anxious. I'm sure most people have. It's very difficult. It's unsettling. And again, you feel like an itchy. You can't sit still and you just feel, I don't know, I felt senses of dread sometimes, et cetera. Like, what do you do when you're in the thick of it? Have you developed any methodology to help someone? Yes, Rich. When you're feeling that way, my prompt is, what is the thought you just had that you may or may not be aware of? But let's go back and look for it. What is the thought you had that is summoning up the dread, the itchiness, the fear? The thought is always there. My belief is thought comes before feeling. We may be aware of what we're feeling. Track the thought. And then when you see the thought, Rich, you say to yourself, well, that's a thought. Or it's just a thought. Or it's only a thought. Then you can look at the thought and dissemble the thought and say, does that thought serve me? So what I teach people is what I call a mastery of thinking. Thinking is my ability to see the thought and not become the thought. So we develop a muscle memory. It's kind of like if you've ever gone fishing and you catch and release the fish, you catch it and release it. Do the same thing with thought and you keep doing it. You prompt yourself. What was my last thought? Ah, there it is. And the more often you do it throughout the day, you'll reach a breakaway point where there's a sense of yourself that is more than the old imprisoning thoughts. That's freedom. So when you when you catch a thought, if it's too negative, you throw it back? Is that the standard? Well, certainly if you have a thought that's creating happiness and fulfillment, we shouldn't examine it. We should just let it be. But if you have a thought that is bringing you down, that is making you feel anxious or fearful, 
that thought doesn't serve you. It's not informing you in a healthy way. Critical thought can be constructive, like, you know, deliberation of, you know, this isn't working out. Maybe I need to change my approach or my method. That's constructive. We're talking about fearful thought. Anxiety, simply put, is a word we use to describe what happens when thought attaches to fear. So we don't want thought attaching to fear. That's a technique. I I speak about this in my book, The Possibility Principle, about how to see the thought and not become it. And then you exist in a state of absolute possibility. Think of it this way. Uncertainty equals possibilities. Certainty forecloses on possibilities. But we're so rooted in seeking certainty. So in my work as a therapist, I often work with people who may be in an unhappy place in their lives. I'll give you an example. Years ago, I'm working with a woman, middle-aged, very unhappily married. She and her husband did marriage counseling, no help. They had no shared common interests. They didn't even like each other. Good news. They were financially independent and had no children. So I asked her, why do you remain married? Her answer revealed just what I'm saying. She said, I don't know who I'd be if I were divorced. So it was the fear of the unknown. See, identity tends to cling to certainty and known, even if the known is unhappy or imprisoning. That's the conundrum. If we cling to certainty, we don't get to free ourselves and progress. Look at my decision to shift careers midstream. Not that it didn't bring on a lot of challenges. Suppose I had a thought that was fearful around uncertainty. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't take the risk. What will happen if it doesn't work out? If I had that thought, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. And no doubt, I'd be a far far less happy individual. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, so what do you do for people that, let's say, ruminate a lot or, you know, they try to pay attention to the thoughts, but I don't know, it's just their mind is so busy that they're overwhelmed and just dozens of thoughts come. You know, how can you help people that are really amped up to calm down? and? So so I created exercises, which I delineate in my book or in my podcast, so listeners can listen to my podcasts. What we do is we slow down the process. While I'm talking, I may ask them, are you aware of what your thought is telling you right now? So sometimes in that moment, I might hear something like, well, this sounds interesting, but I don't think I can do it. Other people could do this. I won't be able to. So I'll stop. Let's look at that thought. That's an example of old thought imprisoning you. It's telling you what you can or can't do. But how does your thought know? Have you ever tried what I'm suggesting? The answer is no. And if you've never tried it, it's a thought that's telling you this is hard to do. Your thought doesn't know. 
That's all thought defending its territory. So coming back to your question, Rich, the first thing is to slow down the process and develop this awareness, this sentience about thought and the exercises throughout the day as many times as you can. Just prompt yourself, what's my thought right now? What's the last thought I had? And then don't judge it. Don't get into a dance with it. See it and release it. You reach a breakaway point where it becomes natural. So when I'm talking, I may say, you know, Rich, while you're talking, I had a thought come up. Here's what my thought is telling me. You see what I've done? I've separated me from thought. Otherwise, I am just the end result of millions of thoughts that are unexamined. That's what constrains us in our lives. We need to introduce new thinking. So in quantum physics, it is proposed that in the nanosecond, everything exists in a state of pure possibility, pure potential. So I had a new thought. In the nanosecond between my thoughts, I exist in a state of pure potential, except I can never access it if I'm blind to those thoughts and I keep on having the same old thoughts. So I, in my own experience, developed this ability to stretch it out and experience that nanosecond between thoughts. I find that's where insight comes from. That's where deep intuition comes from, where deeper knowing. So this doesn't require genius. I know your podcast is finding genius. It doesn't require genius. It requires learning a new way to see thought and not become thought. I guess people think that their thoughts are themselves. So when something comes to my mind, I just feel like it's all one. My mind is me. But I guess you're saying that. uh, How should should you think about your own mind then? That is an excellent question. So different people have different explanations of definition of mind. For me, and I have started working on a book on that, think of concentric circles. So at the smallest interior circle, you have thought, you have feeling, then you expand it. You have thinking, the ability to see thought. And that taps you into an intuitive energy where you can tap into universal energy and know things that you didn't think that you knew. So that it's kind of why we will say things like, you know, change is hard. Well, let's look at it. Change would be daunting if my old thoughts were dictating what I could or couldn't do. That would be like tied to the whipping post. It shackles us. So you're right. Most people think that I, the sense of me, is the equivalent of my thoughts because we were never taught differently, sadly. When we free ourselves from that and we can ride the wave of uncertainty, beautiful things come to us. It becomes aspirational. Like there are people who were taught in childhood, think before you speak, and they have sometimes have terrible consequences. People become fearful. If they're speaking, mm-hmm. they actually have to create the entire sentence in their mind before they speak it. That's not natural. But if you embrace uncertainty, if you have an instinct or a feeling, you start your sentence and you trust it'll all come out. You don't try to predictably work out the sentence in advance. Otherwise, that's kind of like living life like you're playing chess. You're sitting back, detached, analyzing, calculating, predicting. That's great for chess. But in life, we want to be in the flow of life. 
So you can't be in the flow at the same time the old thought has its grip on you and you're trying to predict the future. You have to let that go. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I don't know. What does this practice look like after you, after one has done it for a while? Like how much easier is it to, you know, when you have a thought, a bad thought in your head, what would happen before you were practiced at this? So what happens now? Well, I, let's say it's a thought that limits me, like a thought like I'm never going to succeed. I'm a failure. I'm a screw up. Let's take a thought like that. If I'm working with that individual, first thing is we see the thought. Oh, is that a new thought? I've had that thought thousands of times. Where did the thought come from? Well, I may hear different things. You know, in second grade, I didn't understand the problem. The teacher said to me, what's wrong with me? And that humiliated me and stuck with me. Or one of my parents said to me, I'll never amount to anything. So that, out of that experience, I developed a false limiting belief about myself. Now, out of that unexamined false belief, I've had innumerable, countless thoughts to confirm to that belief. Now, if I have that belief in those thoughts, let's call it I'm a screw up. How do you think that's going to impact my life, my success, my relationships? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I propose is that beliefs are more fundamental than thoughts. So look at those recurring negative limiting thoughts and ask yourself, what's the belief that is producing those thoughts? Usually we can find it. And then ask yourself, how did I come to that belief? How do I know the belief is true? What if my teacher or my mom or dad had never said those things to me? Would I have a different belief? The answer is sure. Why not? So it's just an old belief. Now I explain in my book how we can break free from those old limiting beliefs that literally collapse our potential because it's pathetically sad and it doesn't need to be that way. If only these methods were taught to us in school, along yeah, with you know, emotional intimacy. Um, they don't teach you anything you need in school. Get out of here, please. Exactly. <laughs> I'm writing a new book which I was working on just before I got on this call with you, Rich. And it is that if these things were taught alongside history, English, and math, we'd be living in an altogether different world. You know, science progresses, Mm -hmm. businesses profit, health increases, we get stronger, but our experience of life and quality of life doesn't improve. And it's because we don't value these things and nobody ever taught us how. And so we're stuck. And it's sad. But the good news is for anyone who wants to challenge their operating limiting belief systems, you're free to do so. It doesn't have, you know, I'm not the only method in the world here around this. We all develop our own unique approach. Well, what is people's experience when you take them through this, let's say the first few times or the first time? You know, they, you, I, I, I guess you ask them what they're feeling. They tell you and you go, you step through these questions with them. What happened? And I will, I will say honestly, I work differently with every different person I work with. So I get to, sometimes I'll, I'll hear, you know, as I said before, this sounds really hard to do. Have you ever tried it? No. Then why do you think it sounds hard to do? If nobody ever taught you how to do arithmetic, we would say, I can't do that. That sounds hard, but we were taught. So I break through the barrier. I break through the grip of old thought. 
that is going to limit our work. Then I create the exercises, and I have many. When you start to see that old thought, that limiting thought, um, for some people, a visual helps. You visualize putting your forefinger over your lips and just gently saying, quiet down. Or picture someone knocking at the door, but the thought is doing the knocking and saying, I hear it knocking. I don't have to answer the door. So I have many exercises. I don't know which one will work, but I trust that any number of them potentially will. Then I move into language. Communication is an area of great passion for me. And I introduce the fact that in every sentence, we use one of a number of words that absolutely limit us and confine us. These are the to be verbs. Words like is, am, be, been, was. These verbs are the only verbs that don't show movement in action. They're all inert and fixed and they limit us and they create a false reality. So I teach people to think and speak without to be verbs. For example, instead of saying, let's go back to that old analogy I was using. I'm a loser. I'm a screw up. I am. See the word am. That's a statement of fact. It's objective and it's unchanging. That's why we struggle. So I'll prompt the person I'm working with. Say that same thing without using a to be verb. I feel like a screw up. I've always felt like a screw up. But something changes when they do that. What changes? Well, I feel that way. I've always felt that way. But I could feel differently in the next moment or tomorrow. I feel is very different than I am. See, when we remove the to be verbs, it opens up the fact that I'm in charge, not the thing. And in communication and in relationships, wow, what a difference. What do you mean with to be? Okay, so let's say someone yells at you, you're an idiot, you know, and it just bothers you later okay, on in the so day. What, of, how would you examine so in, them? So instead, of, well, firstly, if I were working with two people and someone says, you're an idiot. Now, that other person is no longer listening. That's it. There's no conversation. But if you said to that person, you know, I'm having a hard time understanding the sense of what you're telling me. Could you find a different way to express this? Then we can engage each other. But let's go now personally. If someone thinks I am an idiot, it's very different to shift and say, I feel like an idiot. Okay, how come? What makes you feel like an idiot? Then they take ownership. There's a sovereignty. I feel like an idiot because I have my old belief hanging on my back that I am an idiot. I feel like an idiot because I don't think people value or respect what I have to say. We're starting to become, we take subjective ownership of our life experience instead of it being a fixed sentence that's damning us. It makes all the difference. And it gets past conflict in communication. So again, think, think of about a couple, a marriage. And she says to her husband, you, you're so insensitive. You are so insensitive. He defends himself. I am not insensitive. And it's a ping pong match. Nothing gets anywhere. But if she says, I find you to be insensitive. I experience you as insensitive. Tell me about that. How come? How are you experiencing me differently than I'm experiencing me? It can open up a fruitful dialogue. To be verbs speak of a fixed objective reality. But reality, according to quantum physics, is not fixed and objective. 
It's flowing. It's full of possibility and potential. And we remain stuck in these two reverbs. We remain stuck in 17th century thinking of Newton and Descartes, who told us reality was like a giant machine called a machine-like universe. We became the parts of that machine, which is why people will say, I think I have a screw loose or I'm not wired that way. We don't have screws and there's no wires. We we need to break free. So the two B verbs are keeping us stuck in centuries old thinking. So that's another technique I use beyond anxiety, of course. I utilize this in all areas because sometimes someone will ask me, so Mel, this shift, this new worldview, the new paradigm of quantum physics, why is it taking so long? And a great question. And the answer I came to is because our thoughts are still cemented in the false to be verbs of 17th century machine-like reality. That's why. So words matter. Yeah, no, I I understand. And examining these feelings as if you're examining something scientifically instead of just being the feelings or letting them consume you or, or saying, I am this feeling. And beyond that, Rich, if you can see your feeling and express it, then you're not being reactive. So think about this. If I get angry and I don't notice that I'm feeling angry, I become angry. I become my feeling and then I blow up. And now the spotlight's on me. I'm an idiot, embarrassed. But if I can notice that I'm feeling angry, so I can say to someone, you know, I'm beginning to feel angry. Let me tell you why, what you said that's making me feel angry. That's an effective communication. So don't be angry. Express that you're feeling angry. So that nanosecond also helps me see my feeling and not become the feeling. Obviously, we're only talking about problematic feelings here. So um, if you're in a dialogue with someone, like an argument, and again, they, they start insulting you, are you now at the point where you're able to, I guess, control yourself and answer them back and not let them rattle you no matter what they say? Well, yes. In fact, it's, I wouldn't even use the word control myself. I lean in. Instead of being back on my heels, I lean in. So I'll take what someone is accusing me of and perhaps be curious and lean in and try to ask them, well, how did they come to that perception? What is it that got triggered in them? I'm not on the defensive any longer. I'm curious. If I'm curious and lean in, then I'm doing the very best I can do. You know, this occurred, this occurred to me long time ago in um when john kerry was running against george bush for president and leaving politics out of this just using this as a learning example bush accused kerry of being a flip-flopper and kerry said i'm not a flip-flopper he was defensive wrong answer mm-hmm. kerry should have said to bush well i'm not sure what you mean by flip-flopper but If you're saying I change my mind over time, particularly when there's new evidence to consider, I think that's good. That's being reflective. Don't you ever change your mind? Or once you take a position, are you stuck forever? That's what I mean. You lean into the accusation and you turn the accusation into something that may not make any sense. Don't defend against the label. Lean in and inquire. What does that mean? If I'm saying something you disagree with, then you call me stupid. Okay. I think what you say, say is I don't agree with you or I don't see your point. That gives you a commanding, 
commanding presence. Lean in, don't defend. What What do you see? Um, that's that's a great technique. What do you see are the most difficult accusations or emotions to to do this with? Like, which ones are easier? Which ones are really hard to do it with? Good question. I, I've never been asked that question. I, I think that the the category that seems to come through throughout is the pervasive sense of low self-esteem, which is a problem in our culture, because I would say the majority of people have low self-esteem because they're following a rule book, which makes no sense. Like common beliefs like act strong, show no weakness. Well, acting strong and showing no weakness will guarantee low self-esteem because you're acting. So acting is weak. You're hiding things from people. How is that ever going to develop self-empowerment? So it's the opposite. Don't act. Actually reveal your vulnerability and your insecurity. And two things happen. One, you're not setting someone else up as your judge. You're just a person with an opinion. And two, when you share your insecurity, it's no longer trapped inside of you. You start to release it and you're growing confidence. So I would say the prevailing problem on the largest level is low self-worth. And it's because we're following a rule book that makes no sense at all. We don't teach people how to develop authentic self-esteem. So again, do you know which emotion seems to be, I guess, like, I guess a fundamental lack of self-belief or self-worth? Yes, I'm saying, I'm saying that, yes, Rich, what I'm saying to answer your question is I'm going underneath the belief in the thought. I'm saying, what Hmm. is it underneath? And underneath it's low self-worth. Now, the diagnostic manual for pathology in our country, the psychiatric and psychological Bible, the DSM, there's no diagnosis for low self-worth, arguably because they don't have a drug to medicate it. But here's the thing. People with anxiety, and particularly social anxiety, and sometimes depression, more often than not, I find what's underneath it is low self-worth. So I work with the self-worth, and then the symptom, the anxiety, the depression, that lifts. Because what's underneath it? This core, deteriorating, self-punishing sense of self. If your thoughts are your constant critic, how do you think you're going to experience yourself in your life? Not very well. Yeah. So it comes true. back to thought. I prompt people by saying, are your thoughts your ally or your critic? Or somewhere in between. Because I want to develop the ability to think, which means to see the thought. I, I've learned, and I, I came to learn these approaches. I don't read psychology. I read philosophy, again, quantum physics. And I came to read something that prompted me to think that maybe I could develop the ability to become aware of my thought just a nanosecond before it actually became a thought. So it's like a reflex. If I could feel that reflex, and if I could capture that nanosecond, what edge would that give me in my life? And it worked. And so... You know, when I'm doing an interview, sometimes the interviewer will ask, uh, would you like a list of the questions in advance? And I say, oh, God, no. That's, that would be terrible. I, I don't want to ha- know the questions last set answers. I want to be asked questions I've never been asked 
because I'm comfortable with uncertainty. I feel great feeling confused, not knowing, because I trust the process. It'll work out. I embrace confusion rather than avoiding it. And you see that harkens back to a self-worth thing. Most people, if they read something and don't understand it, their monologue is, what's wrong with me? I'm so stupid. I don't want to read a book where I understand everything. That's a waste of my time. I want to read it and circle it and make some notes and say, hmm, I'm not sure about this. Because I'm trusting that days, weeks, or months later, it'll pop up and I'll have an insight and breakthrough. That's exciting. I want to be confused. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, nowadays, people are the opposite. They, you know, if they don't um, know the answer, they fear oh. that people will make fun of them and they don't want to say anything. And there's also obviously a lot of suppression of ideas and censorship and everything. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. So then everyone's operating from fear. Again, you said, you asked me a question before, and I said, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. That's a good question for me. But when we watch interviews, someone says, great question. It means they have a ready, quick answer. That's not a great question. You know, questions, I believe questions are far more important than answers because questions direct where our attention goes. That's powerful. An answer ends the inquiry. Questions are powerful. And we keep asking the same old questions so we don't grow. We well, need it's to my job questions. to ask good ones. You know, yeah, sometimes as people will say to you, like, I've gotten one or two people, it's not a lot, but they're like, why would you even ask such a question? And <laughs> I don't know. Or, or people will say, I've already answered that. Didn't you hear what I was saying? And I don't know. I've gotten responses like that sometimes. So sometimes it's not easy to ask questions. Well, but, that should, but I would say, but that shouldn't stop you. Because you triggered someone's insecurity. But your job is not to make people feel comfortable. Your job is to ask compelling questions and have a great interview, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. So it's not your job to nursemaid the people you're interviewing. So if someone says to you, well, why did you ask that question? You might say, well, why wouldn't I? See, that's a new question. What makes you uncomfortable mm. with my question? Now that opens up a real discussion, doesn't it? True. Yeah. Well, they probably wouldn't answer uh, so that. Again, they, they so again, Rich, so Rich, that's an example of leaning in, right? There, there's your example of leaning in, which is, I was curious. That's why I asked that question. How come that made you uncomfortable? Mm. You don't have to ask, you don't have to ask it argumentatively. Could you share what's making you uncomfortable about my question? My guess is they're lacking the confidence or the authority to say, I'm not sure of the answer. And it speaks back to what you're speaking about. We have a culture so rooted in certainty and information that we don't embrace uncertainty. What happens if you're in a conversation and, you know, someone someone says something to you, you push back in a nice way, but they just get, they get to the point where they literally just, they can't hack it. They disengage or they, they hang up on you or they walk away or they just, you know, they just can't hack the question or they can't hack your answer. What what do you do then? Well, what, well, is there a gentle way to get them back? Well, so you're, you're not referring to you and your capacity as interviewing someone on a podcast. You mean in general life. Yeah, like right. let's say, right, you're talking to someone and you come back with this leaning in type answer and they go, I, I just don't want to talk to you anymore. Or this conversation's over or they get they get crazy on you. What do you do? Yeah, I say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. My intentions were good. I'm sorry I've triggered in something. And, you know, I didn't mean that, but that's how it is. 
I can't control people. I can have good intentions. I can be sensitive in terms of how I choose to speak to someone to try to keep them engaged, but it can happen. All I okay. can do is be responsible for my intention. So you're unflappable in conversation. I'm not going to say that. That, that would be too egocentric. <laughs> okay, so let, let, me, let me be authentic. There sure. are circumstances in very close personal relationships where I can get triggered. But I will regroup and I will try to come back at it in a centered way that's not defensive or accusatory. But I would say outside of just a couple of relationships, I feel unflappable. I may walk away from a conversation thinking to myself, what a jerk. I'm human, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to get in someone's face and say, you're a jerk. What's the point? I'll be talking to myself. It'd be funny if they had you at like a carnival, you know, how they have people that you want to throw stuff at them and dunk them in the water or they make fun <laughs> of you. you. You'd be the opposite. You'd be like, see if you can make Mel mad or see if you can get to him. And like, you'd sit there and they would pay five bucks for the, for the chance and they couldn't do it. You know? Yeah. Well, it, it, it just goes back to authentic self-worth means you're not my judge. If I have to appear in the courtroom, the person in the long black robes, gets to be my judge. Everyone else are people with opinions. I may hope Mm. you have a good opinion of me, but I am not going to betray my genuine self to try to get you to think well of me because that would be subordinating my authenticity and my self-worth. Why would I want to do that? Well, that's really good. That's, That's really an excellent way to look at it. I like that a lot. It's so, the key to self-esteem. Yeah. What, so what are, who are your audiences? Is this more for teens or is this for, is this for anybody that's kind of getting beaten well, up out there in the world? And, and what I, are the I resources? Would say my audience is, is wide. I do Zoom courses, which I'm just about to start offering on overcoming anxiety, on developing authentic self-esteem, cultivating resilient relationships. And so my audiences read my book, particularly the possibility principle, listen to my podcast. Um, I would say anywhere from mid twenties up until as old as you live on. I started Instagram account just a few months ago and every day I post a 60 second video with many of the things we're talking about. And it's just short to the point. It's counterintuitive. It's what I call uncommon sense. And I'm finding people love that. That's that, that's a great audience for me as well. But, you know, by, by day, I'm a full-time psychotherapist and marriage counselor. This is all mm-hmm. in addition. Wow. What do you find that people have the most trouble with in terms of uh, your methods? Not just in themselves, but uh, again, in terms of your methods. Perhaps devotion to change. It requires discipline. You know, I'll give someone an exercise about seeing your thought. I want you Mm. to do this in in this coming week. See how many times you've done it. And the discipline may be lacking. But they worked out with a trainer in the gym three times this week. They had the discipline to get their body in shape. Or they may have the discipline to follow a healthy diet. So it's kind of like... Just as people will go through a detox for health 
or they'll work out. What I'm saying is this is about detoxing your mind. And I don't know of anything that could be more valuable than that. I want to be the thinker of my thoughts, not the prisoner of my thoughts. Well, I mean, this is probably a lay down question, but, you know, over the past 20 months now, what have you seen? You talking about in regards to the pandemic? Yeah. I've seen so many diverse things. You know, there is, there is so much diversity in people. Some people, I, I actually saw relief from the pandemic that they didn't have to go out into the world and do what they were doing if they didn't like what they were doing. Other people, there's the, the loss of social interaction, very, very challenging. And now people are getting back out there and prospering and enjoying. I guess it's all a question of what does someone want to make of it? When the pandemic first began and we were all freaking out, I tried to create relativity for some people. I created relativity by saying, you can order in food. You got a TV in your house, phone, you can watch movies, you can Mm -hmm. do this and do that. I said, now, imagine that you're confined in prison. Imagine your life in a prison cell, whether you're Mm -hmm. guilty or wrongly convicted. Imagine that life. Now imagine yourself in your apartment, your home, and what you have. Relatively speaking, you feel much better. So for people who were struggling with that, I think the relativity was very helpful. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Do you, yeah. do you see that people have lost uh, their ability to cope or to deal with things? Or do you, has it been strengthened by what's been going on? What's your Well, opinion? you know, my, my sample size is not that large. You know, I'm working with 40, 45 people a week. So it's a very small sample size. And in that sample size, no, they did not lose the ability to cope. They're resilient. And mm-hmm. resilience is the key. You know, okay. life is hard. Excellent. Resilience is the ability to bounce back. That's what we need to cultivate, resilience. And to have resilience, you need to have a healthy relationship with your thoughts. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, very good. No, um, so... Where can people go and what should they engage with first? Your well, library I would say of stuff. first stop is my website. It's my name, melschwartz.com. Then you can click on my podcast. I would highly recommend going to my book, The Possibility Principle, which is the core of everything we're talking about. And if you have any particular interest in these areas, well, I'm going to be teaching these in live Zoom courses, which I'm rolling out in January. So go to melschwartz.com and see what attracts you. Okay, excellent. Well, Mel, it's been a really great call. I, I feel uh, I feel better literally having talked to you as well. So thank you for well, being I'm here. Delighted to hear that. Nice meeting you, Rich. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.